This is one that's a, not an easy passage to hear, but it's a life changer. And when Willow and the Virginia Road Band were thinking about the things that keep us in prison, you might think about what is it that keeps you and me in prison? So our text is about a, a, an unusual man. He's possessed by demons, and Jesus Christ doesn't leave him as he is, but he cleanses him and heals him from this terrible plight of having all these demons inside him. We're in the middle of a sermon series on, titled, Jesus is the Question. And the question in our text today is, what is your name? Jesus asked this man, what is your name? So our text is from Mark chapter 5, 1 to 20. And in this sermon series, we're finding that Jesus is not so much an answer giver as he's a question asker. So here's the word of God in Mark chapter 5, 1 and following. They came to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, to the country of the Gazarenes. And when he had stepped out of the boat, immediately a man out of the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. He lived among the tombs, and no one could restrain him anymore, even with a chain, for he had been restrained with shackles and chains, but the chains he wrenched apart, and the shackles he broke in pieces, and no one, no one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always howling and bruising himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and bowed down before him, and he shouted at the top of his voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he had said to him, Come out of the man, you, clean, you unclean spirit. Then Jesus asked him, what is your name? The man replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. He begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now there on the hillside, a great herd of swine was feeding, and the unclean spirits begged him, send us into the swine, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered into the swine, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were... And the Schweinherds ran off and told it in the city and in the country. Then people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus and saw the demoniac sitting there clothed and in his right mind, the very man who had the legion, and they were afraid. And they were afraid. Those who had seen what had happened to the demoniac and to the swine reported it. Then they began to beg Jesus to leave their neighborhood. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed by demons begged him that he might go with him, be with him. But Jesus refused and said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and what mercy he has shown you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Gracious and loving God, please anoint this message. Pour through me the gift of preaching that these words might not simply be human words or my human opinions, but somehow by a miracle of your grace that these words might become your word to us. And may they, as that song just said so beautifully, may they unlock the prison cells of the doors where we are held captive and set us free. Even as you set this demoniac free, may we be set free today. And we claim we will in this miracle 
because we pray in the strong name of Jesus, the risen, reigning Christ. Amen. Our name, you know, is a doorway into our life. If you want to know somebody, you say, well, you tell them your name, and then you ask them what's their name. And a name tells us a lot about somebody. When I was a boy growing up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, our family doctor's name was Caesar Augustus Garofoli. It was quite a name. And Dr. Garofoli always kidded. He said, I think my parents wanted me to have a backup plan. In case I didn't make it as a doctor, I could always fall back and be the emperor, you know. But a name is so precious, particularly if somebody remembers your name. Doesn't it feel good to have somebody remember your name? Some years ago, I preached out here in Southern California. I was a pastor in New York City, but I was invited to come to Southern California. It was before I knew the San Marino Church. I was invited to go to a church not too far away from here in suburban Los Angeles. And I was preaching at the church where Kevin Costner, the actor, was a member, and he was in his prime at that time. Well, on that Sunday that I was there, he and his wife uh, greeted a young woman who was seated behind them, whose name was Sally. And they greeted her, and Sally was, guess, gaga to meet Kevin Costner. She couldn't believe she had met him. And she told him that she wanted to be like him and be an actor, and she had the lead in the school play, and he was, she was beside herself. So that afternoon, she called all her friends and said, hey, I met Kevin Costner in church today. Oh, sure, Sally, sure you met Kevin Costner in church. Yeah, like he goes to church, of course. She said, no, 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 he goes to my church. He's a member of our church. He and his wife were there. And I met him, and I told him I was going to be in the school play. Oh, Sally, you're hallucinating now. They were trying to just keep her under control. But the next Saturday night, Sally had a sleepover and three of her friends came and guess where they wanted to go on Sunday morning? They wanted to go to that church and they weren't looking for Jesus there, I'll tell you. They were looking for Kevin Costner. They were trying to spot him and hoped he was there that day. But he came up behind him. Now, this is a true story. You'll think I'm making this up, but he came up behind him, tapped Sally on the shoulder and said, hi, Sally. Hey, good luck in the school play, by the way. Now, what do you think that did for Sally's image in the school? I mean, the fact that Kevin Costner remembered the girl's name and remembered she was going to be in the school play. Well, her friends were amazed that Kevin Costner really remembered her name. Kevin Costner gave that girl a priceless gift. Some years ago, a church I pastored in New York City had homeless people sleeping on our steps. And when they did, um, we... We were wondering how we could relate to them. One of our elders at a session meeting said, uh, well, I'm going to go out and I'm going to get to know them. And another elder protested and said, how are you going to get to know them? They're homeless for crying out loud. And he, she said, well, I don't know how I'm going to do it. I guess I'm just going to go out and say, hi, I'm Margaret. What's your name? You know what a concept that is. So she went out after the session meeting. She introduced herself and I introduced myself and others did. And we got to know their name. And the homeless people told us that nobody in the city cared about their name. But the fact we cared about their name and we remembered their name, that meant the world to them. Now, remember that when you think about Jesus going across the Sea of Galilee in a storm, and he goes to this land of the Decapolis, meaning 10 cities, and it's the land of the Gerizines. They, it was not a Jewish community. It was a, a, a Gentile community, a, really a pagan community. And this man was there, this demon-possessed man, and he lived among the tombs. And the only way to describe him is he howled, and he bellowed, and he beat himself, and he cut himself and he was put in chains by people. They were afraid of him. They put him in chains. And every time they did that, he broke free of the chains. Now imagine the strength to do that. And Mark's gospel says he was so strong that no one could subdue him. Now think about that. 
When you think about that, this man was bellowing and he ran toward Jesus. When he saw Jesus coming, he runs toward him and he says, Jesus, son of the most high God, do not torment me. He knows Jesus' name and he knows who he is. A lot of the Jewish Pharisees didn't even know that Jesus really was the Messiah. A lot of the religious people of the day didn't realize who he was. But this demon-possessed man knows Jesus and he knows who he is. He says, do not torment me. And Jesus looks him in the eye. And ask him a penetrating question. What is your name? In other words, I want a relationship with you. I, I want to get to know who you are. I, I want to know something about you. What's your name? I wonder how long it had been since anybody had even cared to ask that man what his name was. Do you know what I mean when I say the worst thing you can ever be is just isolated, ignored, nobody seeing you, nobody wanting to even know anything about you? That's what this man had endured for years. But Jesus wants to know him. And not only that, but, but Jesus then cast out the demons from him, the, these demons, and when the man said, my name is Legion, a legion is four to 6,000 Roman soldiers. So when he says, I'm legion, he means I'm possessed by all these soldiers or demons who are guarding my body, and all these demons are inside me, and my identity is wrapped up in this. And Jesus casts out all those demons into the swine, and in, in a sense, the swine asks, uh, the, the uh, demons ask Jesus to cast them into the swine, and I think they wanted to be free of this man so they could multiply, and Jesus does it. But then he turns the tables on the, these demons because they're in the swine. They go over to the edge by the cliff and they jump off into the water, into the Sea of Galilee, and they're all drowned in the Sea of Galilee. Not only the swine, but the demons. And evil is defeated there. So this man is free of all this that had possessed him. He's free of all these demons. He's free of the legion. And he's a new guy. And the gospel writer Mark describes this. He's clothed and in his right mind. In other words, he's a whole new guy. Can you imagine what Steven Spielberg would do with a script like that? I mean, I think even Steven Spielberg might cast Kevin Costner in the role of this uh, demoniac with all these demons, you know. But this morning, what I want to do is look at this text. I want to think of three questions. These three questions, I think, will not only unlock the meaning of this text, because I tell you, San Marino Community Church, this text is as relevant for you and me in 2021 as it was 2,000 years ago. The first question I think we need to address is, where does our identity come from? So Jesus says, what is your name? The man says, Legion. What he's saying to Jesus is, my identity comes from the fact that I am possessed Demons possess me. That's who I am. Beating myself, howling, being in shackles and chains, trying to break free. That's my life. That's my identity. That's who I am. Now, this is just one of those texts on a Sunday morning that we preach on, Jessica and I and others. I'd like to, instead of preaching here in the fellowship hall, I'd like to take you out to the courtyard and take a walk with you or, or have a cup of coffee in one of those beautiful coffee cups out there with San Marino on it. And I'd love to have a cup of coffee. And I'd like to ask you the question, where does your identity come from? Where does my identity come from? And I have a feeling if we could talk about that question, you would tell me and I would tell you about things we possess and things that possess us. I think we would talk about things that we possess like a title or a position or a career. 
or a degree we earned, or an achievement, or some award we won, or boards we serve on, or country clubs of which we're a member, or kind of material possessions we have, like we own a home, or, or we have a boat, or we have a cars, or maybe we have another vacation home, but all these things we possess. Or maybe we talk about a family legacy. I have a hunch somebody here was named for your father, or grandfather, or grandmother, or mother, or aunt, or there's a family name in your name somewhere, and you bear that legacy. That's something you possess. But I also think, and this is even hard to talk about, but I have, a, I have a feeling that some of us are defined by things that possess us, like illness. I know people who are cancer survivors, but they've said to me, honestly, Tom, my life is defined by the fact that I'm a cancer survivor. I'm thinking of several people I know have Parkinson's, and they said it's such a debilitating disease. Parkinson's defines who I am. I have a feeling that some of us are defined by maybe a family secret that's in our family. Uh, some of us have had a suicide in our family. Some of us have had abuse in our family. Some of us have had somebody who's been incarcerated in our family. And these are not easy things to talk about, so we don't talk about them. But it actually defines who we are, kind of possesses us in a way. So when the family gathers at Thanksgiving or Christmas, there's this family secret. It's like the elephant in the room and everybody knows about it, but nobody dares talk about it. Maybe our dad's an alcoholic or an angerholic or a workaholic, but nobody talks about all this. We just, it's just a family secret that helps to define us. What is it that defines you? Now, here's what's interesting. When Jesus saw this demoniac, this man filled with the demons, I don't think he saw what this guy possessed or what possessed him. I don't think he focused on that. I think he focused on the person. Do you remember in Jessica Von Lower's eloquent sermon last week, she talked about how desperate human beings are to be seen. And she said, we all want to be seen and we all want to be known she said, sometimes we see this sort of person, like in the scripture last week, people saw this sort of woman, but Jesus saw the woman. See, Jesus didn't see this sort of man possessed by demons. He saw the man, he saw the guy, and he saw through him to who he could become, that his identity could be not as a demon-possessed person, but as a whole healed person. Question number one, where does our identity come from? Question number two, are you willing to have Jesus Christ define your identity more than any other single thing? Now, certainly we just said we've been defined by careers and titles and positions and awards and degrees and boards and, and things that even things that possess us like an illness. But, but would you be willing to let Jesus Christ be the primary source of your identity? Now, don't answer too quickly. Because if you answer this way, Jesus Christ is going to want to control your life and you're going to have to give up your agenda for his agenda. You know, if you put the suffix I-A-N at the end of a word, it's very interesting. Put the suffix I-A-N at the end of a, of a proper noun, like Boston, it, it means to live in or be born in. So the suffix I-A-N at the end of Boston, Bostonian, is somebody who lives in or is born in Boston. So if the suffix I ends at the end of any, any name like that, it's to be living in or born in Boston or to live in or be born in Houston or a Californian is somebody who lives in or is born in California. A Christian is somebody who lives in or is born in Christ. So we bear the name of Jesus Christ. We are Christians. We, we live out our faith as a Christian 
it, wherever we are. So we bear that name of Jesus Christ. But here's the amazing thing. Jesus Christ sees through us to who he wants us to become. But to, to do that, in order to let Jesus Christ in, we've got to let go of the control of our lives to Jesus Christ. Is there anybody here who likes to be in control? Is there anybody here who is married to somebody who likes to be in control? So, see, sometimes we like to be in control, and we don't want Jesus to be in control. But the idea is that if we trust Jesus Christ, we're saying, we want you to be in control of our lives more than we're in control of our lives. And that's scary, because God's got more in store for this guy in this text, and more in store for you than we could ever imagine. So he casts out the demons. The guy is fully restored to his right mind. He's clothed in his right mind. And all the swine herders go and tell the people in the Decapolis about it. And they come and they meet Jesus and they meet the guy who's free. And they see this man and they see Jesus. And for the first time in the Bible, it says in the text, this text, they say, and they were afraid. Now notice, they're not afraid of the guy before when he was possessed by the demons. They're not afraid of the demons. They're dead. They're gone. They're not afraid of evil. That's gone. What they're afraid of is Jesus. Because they're afraid, if Jesus could heal this guy, what could he do to me? In other words, if Jesus could heal this man, he could heal me of anything. Now, a very disappointing truth, I think, is that God, very disappointing truth for God, God would like to heal every one of us. I think God wants to set all of us free from the prison that they were just talking about. God wants to set us free. But here's the thing. Here's the catch. I think sometimes we don't want to be set free. Sometimes, as C.S. Lewis says, a familiar captivity is more desirable than an unfamiliar freedom. You know what that means? Let that lean against you a little bit. Sometimes we want the thing that's holding us in bondage more than we want the freedom. But God wants a new life for us. But the people are afraid because they, they realize that, gosh, this could set me free. This guy could be, this Jesus could set me free. So they're afraid of Jesus and they beg him, Mark says. They beg him to leave their land. And he does it. Now think about that. They beg him to leave, and he does. He wants to help them. He would like to heal them, like he healed that man in the, in the Decapolis. But they want him to go, and so he leaves them. You know, this Jesus is very powerful. I have a friend who went to a brand new church, a church that actually, the name of which many people know. And he went to this kind of a prestigious, well-known church, and when he got there, he preached Jesus for the first year. He, every story was from, the, from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All the stories were about Jesus. But the former pastor had preached more political sermons, more social activist sermons. And actually, several people were talking about they didn't like all these sermons about Jesus. So after about a year of these sermons, one woman in the church, a very active person, said to this new pastor, my friend, Jesus, 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 is that all you know about and my friend said, yep, that's pretty much it. You know, if you know Jesus, that is pretty much it. But Jesus can set us free. And here's what I wonder. If Jesus came to your chair today and said, I want to set you free and Tom free. If I want to set you free, where would you advise Jesus that there's something in your life that's holding you back? And would you be willing to trust Jesus to take that out of your life, even if it means you've got to let go of your procrastination 
or your workaholism or your alcoholism or your materialism or the things that are holding us back like anger, resentment, bitterness, envy, jealousy. Sometimes it's delicious to hang on to these things, but Jesus may say, let them go. Would we be willing to let them go to Jesus? Or would we, like the people of the Decapolis, beg him, Jesus, get away from me? And the third question is, would we be willing to serve Jesus Christ right here? Don't miss the end of the story. Oh, man. It's a great ending. The man's clothed in his right mind. The people want Jesus. They beg him to leave the area. So Jesus leaves. And he's going to the boat. And the young man who's, who is healed and whole now, he goes right over to Jesus at the boat and says, Master, I want to go with you. I want to come with you. I want to be with you. I want a relationship with you. And Jesus says, no, you can't come with me. Stay here and serve God here. Tell your friends and neighbors, be a witness to what the Lord has done for you, but do it right here. Do you know what I think is the hardest place to serve God? I think it's harder to serve God here than anywhere else. We want to go over there. It's more glamorous over there. We can do more things over there. But it's hard to serve God in this area where people know us. And yet Jesus said to this guy, look, stay with the people who've known you. Stay with them. Tell them what the Lord has done for you. Bear witness to Jesus Christ right here. I think all of us need to learn that lesson. Certainly, a man who became a friend of mine named Doug's had to learn it. Doug came to me. I got to know him in 2009, 2010. I was working with a church in rural Georgia, out in the, in the area south of Atlanta, near the Florida-Georgia border. And this young man was a college student, a junior in college, and he wanted to serve God. He had a great love for God. And he, after the Haiti earthquake in 2010... There was one just recently, but there was one in 2010. He wanted to go because it was a powerful earthquake. He wanted to go and serve the poor in Haiti. So he got an application from World Vision, and he needed somebody to write a letter of recommendation. And he asked me and his pastor if we'd both write for him. And we said, I said, well, before I write, I really need to get to know you, Doug. So could you come and see me? So he did. I said, why do you want to go to Haiti? He said, well, I'm very touched by the torment there and the poor poverty there. But really what I want to do is I want to share the love of Christ with the people of Haiti. I said, well, what do your mother and dad think? You're going to that area, you know, it's a poor area. There's not many resources. I mean, you have to pay your own way. It's, uh, it's, you have to sleep on a sleeping bag you'd bring, and probably there'd be a lot of mud and filth and soot. I mean, this is a terrible area to go to. What do your parents think? He said, they don't know I'm going. I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, I'm going to tell them I'm taking a summer school class, and I'm not going to tell them about it. I said, well, Doug, you know, you can't go to a foreign country here, one of the poorest countries in the world, without telling your mother and dad. He said, yeah, I, I am going to do that. He said, frankly, I get along okay with my mother, but I'm really not speaking much with my dad. I said, why not? He said, oh, my dad's a materialist. He's a workaholic. He, he doesn't care about me. He doesn't care about anybody else. He just cares about himself and making his money. And he said, frankly, I don't really want anything to do with my dad. I said, so, Doug, how are you going to share the love of Christ in Haiti if you can't love your own dad? I wasn't too popular with Doug after I asked that question, but he, uh, he took it. He said, well, it's a, probably a good question, but he said, I, I don't know what I can do. I said, well, I'll tell you what I will consider. I won't promise, but I'll consider signing your recommendation and writing your letter. If you'd be willing to at least try to be reconciled with your dad, get to know your dad, ask him for your bless for his blessing. Tell him why you want to go to Haiti and tell him why it means something to you. He said, I will, but it won't do any good. I said, well, well, we'll just see what happens. So I prayed with Doug in my office that he would have a relationship with his dad and he'd be healed. 
Well, a week later, Doug and his dad came to see me. And Doug's dad said, thank you for asking Doug to come and, and see me. He said, it was, we've had a number of meetings, and he said, it's been great. He said, what I realize is I'm, I am a workaholic, and I probably in Doug's eyes, I am a materialist, and I value my material possessions, but, but I'm proud he's going to go to Haiti, and I actually want to go with him. What would you think if I went with Doug to Haiti? I said, well, it doesn't matter what I think. What matters is what Doug thinks, what you think. And Doug said, well, I'd, I'd actually like my dad to go, but I don't believe he's going to go. I mean, I, I think he's going to get right up to the plane taken off, and I don't think he's going to get on that plane because he loves his work and he loves his money too much to go to Haiti. So I prayed with these two guys, a father and a son, in my office. I held all their hands, and I just prayed with all my heart that these two could forgive each other, have a new relationship, and love each other. And wonder of wonders, they both got on the plane together. Not only did Doug's dad stay a couple of weeks, which he was going to say, he stayed for most of the time. He stayed well over a month in Haiti, working with the poor, and they worked side by side. And wonder of wonders, Doug got to see his dad in a new light. His dad was CEO of a firm, and his dad had access to money and to water and to electricity and to clean water, something they had a shortage of in Haiti. And he realized his dad could open doors for the people of Haiti, and money flowed in there, and electricity flowed in there, and clean water flowed in there, and supplies flowed in there. And his dad opened the doors, and suddenly Doug saw his dad not just as a mean, materialistic workaholic, but actually as a humble servant guy and as a guy who wanted to help out and his image of his father changed and Doug's father saw his son not as somebody who was cynical and sarcastic of his money but he saw a kid who was actually just like he was somebody who was stubborn and wanted to stand up for the right thing and the father and the son fell in love with one another and developed a relationship and they worked side by side together over and by the for the people of Haiti well when they came back they made an apartment to see me and it was like they were clothed in their right mind there was no sarcasm, no cynicism, no anger at each other. They kidded each other. They slapped each other five. They sat next to each other. They, they rubbed each other. And they, they touched each other. And they talked about their experiences. And then their, both of their eyes got filled with tears when they told me about the people in Haiti and, and what had happened and how poor they were. And people they saw who were dead in the stench. And as they described it, they, they, just, they, they actually held on to each other. And then they prayed. And in their prayer, they said that they wanted their relationship with each other to work as well in the United States as it had in Haiti. And I thought, man, this Jesus, Jesus, Jesus is more powerful than I thought. You know what he did? He took some attitudes in Doug and his dad that were holding them back and set them free so they could become the whole people that God wanted them to be. I wonder, I leave you with this question. Where would God like to come into your life, come close to you? Where would God like to come into your life and take out an attitude or a behavior pattern that's holding you back so you can be the Christians and I can be the Christians that God wants us to be in this area? Willow, Andy, Dan, Tiffany, Sophia, Bong, Jonas. Where does God want us, Janet? Where does God want us 
to set, be set free of something so that we can be Christians in our area. Now, don't worry, I'm not going to mention all your names. I don't know all your names. But God does. And God knows the areas in your life and mine where God wants us to make a difference and be cleansed so that we can be Christians in this world. The question is, are we willing to do it? Are we willing to let God cleanse us so we can be Christians in the world? Are we?